Well, we as people, as human beings, love underdog stories, right? Uh, we love when the weak and the humble in the story defeat the well-talented, well-staffed, or uh, strong team, right? We love watching March Madness when the obscure and the no-name college team from some place in eastern Ohio comes and beats Duke in the first round, right? We love when this happens. One of the greatest examples of this, I think, is when in 1980, the U.S. Olympic hockey team, who at this point was made up of just amateur college players, defeated the all-star, Goliath-like Soviet Union hockey team. Now, some of you, many of you, had the privilege to be alive to actually watch this game, maybe on TV, or to hear it on the radio. But for young people like me, all I have to go off of is the movie they, they made a few years ago with uh, Kurt Russell, and I don't remember anybody else in the movie. But And you know they embellish it some, but as you're watching the movie, or maybe you were there in the moment, uh, you watch this U.S. hockey team struggle through the games leading up to the Olympics and the games leading up to this Soviet Union game, and you start to root for them. You learn about the players, you learn how crazy the coach is, um, and you just want them to win. You also see the Soviet players in a few clips just kind of skate by on the ice, looking really smug, and you know they're thinking, I don't, this U.S. team shouldn't even be on the ice with us, Right? And when the final buzzer sounded, when the scoreboard said U.S. 4, Soviet Union 3, whether you watched it on television, heard on the radio, or saw the movie, you all just responded and exploded with all kinds of emotions, right? You might have jumped up and down, you may have cried, you may have ran around your room, something to show that you were ecstatic, that your team had won. Not only that, but it was totally unexpected, right? We were not supposed to win that game, but we did. Why do we love these stories so much? Why do we experience this deep sense of joy and excitement when things like this happen? Well, I think, I believe it's because we're made and we're wired like our Creator. That God also loves when things like this happen happen. He loves when the weak, when the humble, when the hopeless are exalted, when they're delivered. And this morning, we're going to see how this wonderful, how this all-inspiring reality of who God is and what He does, how it should cause us to respond in an even greater way than when we saw that hockey game. So let's look at 2 Samuel, chapter 22, We'll zero in on verse 28. It's the bolded verse in your worship guide. David sings, You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. These are the words of the Lord. Let's place my papers here. My prayer this morning is that we, like David, would worship our great 
and glorious God who loves to deliver the humble and to bring down the prideful. As a sort of a roadmap for where we're headed, we're first going to look at these two aspects of God. One, that He loves to deliver the humble, and then two, that He looks to bring down the prideful. And then we'll ask the question, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you and me and our worship? First, we see in this verse that God saves a humble people. As we read earlier in the service from 2 Samuel 22, the verse is just two lines of a longer song. One of the last recorded songs of King David when he would die later at the beginning of 1 Kings. Here David bursts out in song to his God, praising him for delivering him from his enemies. Let's look at a few places in the song together where we can see this. In verses 1 to 3, David calls God his rock, his fortress, his deliverer. It is in God that David finds his refuge. In verses 4 to 7, David goes to this refuge by crying out to God for deliverance. He says in verse 7, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called from his temple. He heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then in verses 8 to 20, what Jerry read earlier as our call to worship, David describes God as coming in great power and in strength from heaven, rocking the earth, shaking the heavens, sending forth fire and flame from dark clouds, from thunder. This awesome, all-powerful God who causes the heavens to tremble comes down to do something very specific. He comes down to save David from his enemies. God scatters David's foes with his arrows, and he rescues David from men who were stronger than him. He says then in verses 19 and 20, They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Then in verses 21 to 25, he kind of shifts gears a little. He talks about how he has trusted in God's word, God's law. He can say that he has trusted in God's word, not simply because he knows it, not simply because he's memorized it, but because he does it. He does what God says to do. This is why he can say in verses 24 and 25, I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. And this fits with what we know about the old covenant that God made with his people Israel in the Old Testament, right? That God promised Israel if they would follow his commands, if Israel and its leaders would do what he says then God would bless them. One of the big things being he would deliver them from their enemies. We can look back even for an example in 1 Samuel, if you would flip back there with me. Book of 1 Samuel, 
It's before Second Samuel. We'll look at chapter 12. Beginning in verse 14. He says, If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So David, as the king of Israel, has led Israel to follow God's word, to obey his commandments, to obey his voice. So David in this song is singing to God, praising him for doing what he said he would do, for keeping his promise to Israel and to himself. Now for David to cry out to God in his distress like this, for David to, to submit himself to God's law like he does, he had to humble himself. He had to put his faith in the God who has power over the heavens, over the earth, over the seas, and even over the nations. Instead of trusting in his own strength, his own power, his own wisdom, his own ability even to lead, He trusted in the God who promised to save him in his distress. And this is why David can sing, O God, you save a humble people. You deliver those who trust in you. Those who instead of relying on themselves but trust in God to save them, God will come down to them and rescue them from their enemies. He will even work miracles to save them, and to protect them. If you've been reading through the Bible with us this year, you may have noticed that the book of Samuel, which is First and Second Samuel, really just one big book, begins and ends with a song. These two songs serve as sort of bookends for the whole book of Samuel. And this truth about God that he loves to deliver the humble makes an appearance in the first song as well. This song is sung by a woman who has just had her life turned upside down by God. Hannah, who was unable to have children, whose husband who married another wife simply just to have children because Hannah couldn't, she cries out to God for a son. What does God do? And uh, he comes to her, he opens her womb, and he gives her a son. God answers her prayer, and in response, Hannah just bursts out in song and prays to the God who has heard her, who has answered her prayer, who has delivered her from the shame and the ridicule of her enemies. Many people in our culture today would try to depict the God of the Bible as a cruel and unfeeling tyrant, as a being who exacts judgment on the world, who inconsistently punishes some with death while letting others live, 
a being who doesn't really care about us, about our pain, or about our suffering. But friend, there is nothing further from the truth. For those of you like David and Hannah, who would recognize your own weakness, your own frailty, and to put your trust in God, He will be your closest friend, your closest companion, who will never ever leave you. He will be near you in your suffering. He will be near you in your pain. He will be near you in your cancer. You'll be near you in the loss of your husband. You'll be near you when you've lost your job and you're not sure how you're going to make ends meet. He will be near you when all around us seems like it's falling apart. God will be near you because God loves to deliver the humble. Christian, this is the God we worship. This is the God we sing songs to. This is the, song, the God that we sing songs to like frail children of dust and feeble as frail. In thee do we trust nor find thee to fail. Thy mercies how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. Amen? In the second half of verse 28, David sings something else about God, which is our second point this morning. God not only loves to deliver the humble, but he also looks to bring down the prideful. Let's look again at verse 28. It says, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Now, haughty is a word we don't use very often today, even in youth Sunday school class. I said, I'm not even sure how to say the word. Is it haughty, haughty? What is it? It's really just referring to somebody who exalts himself above God and above others. Someone who is prideful and arrogant. People like the 1980 Soviet Union hockey team who thought they had the gold in the bag, Right? If you're a uh, Lord of the Rings fan, it's people like Saruman and Sauron and Grima Wormtongue who want to see all that is good and right in Middle-earth be destroyed. You're probably thinking now, Paul's kind of a nerd, and (laughs) you would be right. Um, It's talking about people who try to get ahead in their company no matter who they have to lie about or cheat to get there. It's people who make it a point to tell everyone around them all the accomplishments they've made, all the good they've done for the community. It's people who use violence and bullying to create success and opportunities for themselves. It's people who use the advantages they have to put others down. These people, this song, says that these people do not realize what's coming their way. In the lines of this song, it's David's enemies, it's the ones who hate him, who want to see him dethroned and dead. It's these men who fit this description. Let's look at the song again in a few places just to see 
where this is. In David talking about how God saves him from his enemies in verse 18, he describes his enemies as those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Later in verses 34 to 43, David talks about how God even strengthens him to defeat and to push back these foes. At the end of the song in verse 49, he praises God for exalting him above those who rose against me from men of violence. But in the description, in the introduction of this song in verse 1, we're told of one specific enemy that David has that God has delivered him from. If you look at that with me, the author says, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Who is Saul? Saul was the king of Israel before David. And while David reigned over Israel doing all that God had commanded him, Saul reigned over Israel doing whatever he wanted to do. You can read in the book of 1 Samuel all the ways that Saul disobeyed God from offering a sacrifice he wasn't supposed to, to using a medium to conjure up the dead. You can read that. It actually happened. One of the greatest evils Saul does is try to hunt down and to kill David simply because he was jealous of his success and his popularity with the people. At one point, Saul even tries to pin David to the wall with his spear while David is playing the harp for him. Instead of humbling himself and trusting in God, Saul tried to exalt himself by defying God in destroying David. But God's eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Saul would eventually go to war against a neighboring nation, the Philistines, and there both he and his sons would die in battle. God's eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Now, our culture, again, has a hard time grappling with this truth about God. Even Christians sometimes can have a hard time answering their neighbor's questions who would struggle to think that God would bring people down like this, that he would even indirectly cause harm or death to someone, let alone send someone to eternal death and destruction in hell. But Christian, we should not shy away from this truth about God or about what he does. Because we worship and we serve a just and holy God, a God who governs the universe, who punishes those who do wrong, who vindicates those who have been hurt, and who rewards those who have done right. And our society longs for this, right? They long for a justice system that would care for the poor and the oppressed. They long for a police department that would impartially handle crime and disaster relief. They long for a society where good cops aren't just unjustly thrown in with the bad. You can't even go out to eat today 
without it being a justice issue. Our society, our culture longs for justice. And church, we worship a God that gets these things right every time. A God who protects the weakest and the most frail. A God who sees and watches what goes on on the earth and will impartially judge those who do wrong. A God who does not look away from genocide, from rape, from murder. A God who does not look away from extortion, from police brutality. God does not turn his head away from these things. But his eyes are on the prideful and the haughty to bring them down. David, toward the end of his life here, reflects on how God has rescued him and delivered him from these prideful and bloodthirsty enemies. And all he can do is turn and worship to his glorious and great God. And it's not only in the book of Samuel, in the life of David, that we see God work this way. We see in the book of Genesis, a humble and imprisoned Joseph delivered while his prideful and jealous brothers bow down before him. We see in the book of Exodus, a humble and enslaved Israel delivered from a prideful and hard-hearted Pharaoh. We see in the book of Job, a humble and suffering Job delivered while his prideful and insensitive friends are rebuked by God. We see in the book of Esther, a humble and overlooked Mordecai who is delivered from a prideful and vindictive Haman. We see in the book of Daniel, a humble and persecuted Daniel delivered from a cruel tyrant Nebuchadnezzar. We see in the Gospels, a humble and poor Mary chosen to carry the Son of God in her womb. We see a humble and lowly carpenter. Slandered and rejected by the religious leaders of his day. Beaten with a whip. Nailed to a cross. Dead in a tomb. Resurrected from the grave. Delivered to new life. Amen? Not only is this how God works in the past. But the Apostle John tells us that this is how God will work in the future. In the book of Revelation, we see humble and martyred saints delivered to eternal life to stand and worship before the throne of God. We see a humble and slain lamb delivered and exalted with thousands singing, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Church, this is our God. This is who we worship. He loves to deliver the humble. And his eyes are on the prideful and the haughty to bring them down. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you and me? 
I think maybe for some of us, I think for many in our community, we tend to assume that we are the humble people in this verse. We tend to assume that we are the 1980 U.S. hockey team that beyond all odds defeats the prideful and the arrogant Soviet Union. But in reality, you're on the other team. You're on the other side. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know, this really sounds nice. What Paul is talking about sounds good, but he's really talking to those people who take this church stuff really seriously. You know, that may work for them, and that's great, but for me, I'm okay. I'm not really that bad of a person. I never cheated on my wife. I've never cheated on my taxes. I tithe. I give to charity. I go to church regularly. I'm good. I don't really need all this saving he's talking about. Friend, let me tell you, if you're thinking like this, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save you, you're standing up in defiance and pride before God, and He looks to bring you down. The gospel tells us that our greatest problem, our greatest enemy is our own sin. And we all, all humanity, stand before God condemned because we have not worshiped God as we should, as He deserves, or followed His commandments as we ought to. And since God is perfectly holy and good, it is just and right for Him to punish us for our sin. And the Bible tells us that the punishment for sin is death, not just physical death, but spiritual eternal destruction and torment. And this is humanity's. This is yours and my greatest problem. When we are helpless and hopeless to try and fix it ourselves, even to rely on our own goodness, our own niceness to save us is really to make a stand before God in defiance against His Word. So what are we to do? How are we delivered from this destruction? How can this problem be fixed? If we can't do it, then who can? Well, friend, the Bible tells us that God has fixed our problem. God the Son has come to us in humility. He became a man whose name is Jesus. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserved he has risen from the grave to give us new life in Him. But how do we get in on this? How does Jesus' death and resurrection solve your specific problem? How does Jesus' death and resurrection save my problem? The Bible says that when you humble yourself, when you recognize and repent of your sin, and put your faith in this Jesus, you will be saved. You will be delivered from eternal death and destruction. God will no longer look down on you to bring you down. God will look on you as His son and daughter. He will look on you 
and see his son's perfect righteousness. God will look on you and forgive your sins. God will look on you and give you eternal life with him. God will look on you and strengthen you to defeat the sin that is in your life. God will look on you and be near you in all of your pain and your suffering. Because God loves to deliver and save the humble. And his eyes are on the haughty and the prideful to bring them down. So friend, humble yourself before God. Turn, repent of your sin and reliance on yourself and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. He will deliver you. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have experienced this wonderful deliverance from God. You know how helpless and hopeless you were in your sin, and you cried out to God to save you, and God has delivered you from your greatest enemies, from your sin, from Satan's hold on your life, and even from death. O Christian, like David, remember this and burst out in worship and praise to your God. Sing with the same volume, the same intensity, no matter what instruments are on the stage, no matter what song is playing, whether you like it or don't like it. Sing with your brothers and sisters great and loud praise to the God who has delivered you. Love and cherish God's word like David did. Spend time in it every day. Memorize it. Sing about it. Do what it says. And rejoice in Jesus, your King, who has brought down all of his foes. I'll end on this. Anyone who is able to watch the 1980 Olympic hockey game in the midst of the final moments as the buzzer was sounding, you would have heard the commentator Al Michaels ask a question in utter disbelief. The question wasn't, do you believe in man's great power? No, the question wasn't, do you believe in what people can do when they pull together? No, the question was, do you believe in miracles? And I'm not trying to say that the U.S. victory there was an act of God or a miracle. Don't hear me say that. But notice how the world reacts when the humble are delivered and the prideful are brought down. Church, we worship a God whose very nature is to do this very thing. This is our God. Humble yourself before Him. Repent of your sin and worship Him. Let's pray.